Hope restored. It's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And we've been saying that uh, hope is important. It's not only important for future events and, and uh, an expectation of what's going to come to pass, but, but one of the things I've been saying is that hope is essential for, for, for living in the present and living especially through some of the storms that we experience in this life. We uh, began by looking at uh, Jeremiah 29 and 11. What an amazing promise, right? That is, God says, I know the plans that I have toward you, says the Lord. They are plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And what an encouraging uh, verse that, that, that was. And that really kind of expresses the, the, the heart of God toward us in Christ, that, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And, and in Christ, we have an amazing inheritance. Uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Prince, uh, Prince William and Kate and the birth of their child over the pond, you know, uh, George, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you know this, but in 1997, uh, when Diana, Prince Diana died, she, she left her two boys, William and Harry, uh, an inheritance, $20 million. Uh, over the course of their teenage years and their 20s, that uh, inheritance grew to uh, $31 million. Not a bad piece of change, right? Uh, the only stipulation was that they could not begin to utilize it. They couldn't receive it until they were 30 years of age. Now, last June, uh, William became, was 30 years old, and he received his inheritance. And Harry, uh, in a couple of years, will turn 30, and, and he likewise will receive his inheritance. Uh, it's in their name. It was promised to them. It's holding in trust for them, you know, and it's certain. And uh, even more certain, however, if you're a believer in Christ, you have an inheritance. It's been promised to you. It's in your name. It's being held for you, reserved for you. And uh, what an exceeding great and precious promises that we have that give us hope. One of the things I said that there is a, a promise in the word of God, covering every contingency that we will ever face in life. And so how precious and how important the word of God is to us. Uh, I want to kind of revisit a statement that uh, I shared with you in the beginning of this series from John Piper. I think it's worthy of uh, looking at it again as we continue in this theme of hope restored. So, so here, here's what Piper said, and you might remember it. All discouragement and depression is related to the obscuring, the veiling of our hope. And we need to get these clouds out of the way and fight like crazy to see clearly how precious Jesus is. I, I, I just love that statement. All discouragement and depression is, is related to, caused by the obscuring of our hope. And you know what? That, that describes perfectly the discouragement, the, the feeling of hopelessness, the, the feeling of depression was immediately felt by all of the disciples of Jesus upon his arrest, his torture, and his execution. Fear also gripped each and every one of them. Remember when the shepherd was struck, the sheep did scatter. Uh, what an amazing, amazing experience that each of these men and women uh, entered into uh, a time of great uncertainty as uncertainty gripped their hearts. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, 
They say that fear and greed move the markets, the stock market. You know, if, if, if you know a little bit about that, you, you, you know that those two emotions, th- those two things, fear and greed, cause the market on a daily basis to either go up or go down. But there's nothing that so affects investors more than uncertainty. To investors, bad news is better than uncertainty. There's something about uncertainty. It's, it's unsettling. It's un, unnerving. You, you don't know what's coming down the road. Uh, and that's exactly where the disciples were. There was a great unsettling. There was a great uncertainty. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Daniel uh, Gilbert, who's a psychology professor. Now, now, Jamie, you might find this. You're a psychology major, right? So, so maybe you've even heard of this study, but... But he, he, he wrote this in an article. He said that Americans are smiling less than they were a year ago, worrying more. Happiness is down. Sadness is up. People are getting less sleep, and depression is on the rise. And, and he cites a study that was done uh, by the Dutch. They, they had two groups. And to one group, they said they were going to receive 20 uh, shocks. And uh, to the other group, they were going to receive three heavy shocks, but uh, 17 mild ones. But they, they weren't going to be told when the, the stronger shocks would take place. And the result was, in this study, was that the second group experienced more sweating and, and a higher uh, heart rate than, than the first group. Why? Their uncomfortableness came as a result of the uncertainty as to when they would be shocked. Uncertainty causes a great deal of discomfort, and that certainly described the disciples right before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at a, a portion of Scripture this morning that's going to kind of give us the frame mind of how all the disciples felt, and it's highlighting two of the disciples. And so you may know the story. It's found in Luke chapter 24, so let me uh, begin by reading verse 13. It says, now the same day, that is the day of the resurrection. So Jesus has, has risen from the dead. It's the day of the resurrection. Somewhere around mid-morning or mid-afternoon, uh, this is taking place. Uh, two of the disciples were, were, were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, he said, what are you discussing? They stood still, their faces downcast. Okay, so that's the first indication that these guys were depressed. One of them named Cleophas asked him, are you of only visitor in Jerusalem and are unaware of the events that took place? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now, here's, here's the tell, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, we had hoped he was the Messiah. We had placed our hopes in him, but now that he's gone, Our hope is past tense. The phrase, we had hope, is a past tense phrase. Clearly, the cause of their being downcast, their their downcast faces, their depression, was a result of what John Piper said was 
was the obscuring of their hope. The veiling of their hope caused them to be so discouraged. Let me share this statement with you. I, I think it's really important. The loss of hope in a crisis is a crisis. Let me say it again. The loss of hope in a crisis is a crisis. In fact, in fact, it could become the greater crisis than that which puts you in the crisis in the first place. Why? Because hope acts like an anchor for the soul that provides stability when life becomes chaotic. Andy Stanley, I heard Andy Stanley use this illustration. He and his wife and another couple were vacationing uh, on a sailing ship. And uh, the captain of the ship got word that there was going to be a storm that they could not avoid. And so what he did was the captain pulled the vessel into a cove and began to lock down the ship and began to secure the ship. He used every available anchor that he had. I mean, he, he anchored down the starboard, the stern, you know, the back, the front, the sides with these heavy ropes and anchors. And, and actually, he was so convinced that they were fine to weather the storm that they weren't going to leave the ship. They were going to weather the storm. And so Andy said, I put my trust in the captain who put his trust in the anchor. And that night... The storm came, and the winds came, and the waves came. He says, but the, but the ship hardly even rocked amidst the storm. In the morning when they, when they woke up and they looked at, at what had happened in that cove, there were many of the other vessels that had tied down there that were destroyed. Listen, here's, here, here, here's the point, that when our hope is in Christ, we can, no matter what, what side it's coming from, no matter where, the, we can weather any storm possible. Amen? I want you to consider this. The opposite is also true. How awful it is when people lose hope, when people feel hopeless. Maybe some of you have read the news uh, over the last number of weeks, the number of shootings that have taken place in Chicago. Over the 4th of July weekend, there were 60 shootings, 55 injuries, 9 fatalities. One story that comes out of Chicago was was of this tragic, this, this tragic shooting of a, of a young boy who became permanently disabled. Uh, it was a drive-by shooting, senseless drive-by shooting. And, 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 and the thing is that, that made this story, I mean, that's awful enough, but the thing that made this even more horrifying is that everyone in the neighborhood knew who the shooter was, but no one came forth. In fact, even the mother had said that she had passed the shooter's house every day on her way to work. But that whole neighborhood was gripped in, in a sense of hopelessness. This is what a journalist who was writing the article said. Actually, it wasn't him. He was quoting a, an educator from Chicago who said this. And this is, this is what appeared in the article. That's what happens when people lose hope. You think things will never get better so you just give up. You think things will never get better, so you just give up. The loss of hope, we said it like this, the loss of hope makes the heart sick, but when hope is restored, it becomes a tree of life. A whole neighborhood had been paralyzed because of their hopelessness. Now we have two disciples that we're talking about who said, we had hoped which means past tense, they had lost their hope and their faces were downcast and they were depressed. 
but by the grace of God, there's an intervention that's about to take place. You've heard of, you've heard of these drug or these addiction interventions? Well, thank God that Jesus was going to uh, intervene on their behalf. And he was coming alongside of them. And as they continued to walk and converse with Jesus, Jesus called them out. Listen to what he says to them in verse 25. He said, how foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said about him in the scriptures or concerning him. Could you imagine having a Bible study personally being taught to you by Jesus himself? No, 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 no wonder why the end result was, and I, and I love this statement. I especially love verse 32. They said, did not our hearts. It's like they said this to each other at the same time. It's like, do you ever have that happen when you're talking to somebody and you both say the same thing? That, that's what happened. They said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. In the moment the scriptures were opened, and, and of course what happened was that, that they persuaded this stranger to stay with them in the inn when they arrived at their destination. And when they were sharing a meal and when Jesus was breaking bread, suddenly their eyes were open and they realized it was Jesus. Jesus disappeared from, from their midst. But, but they were left with that amazing statement that their hearts were, were ignited because he had opened to them an understanding of the word of God. And listen, at that moment, hope was restored. At that moment, they realized that Jesus was in fact alive. Therefore, their hope was now alive and their hope was restored. When hope is restored, it becomes a tree of life. Yet for one of the disciples who followed hard after the Lord, following hard after the Lord now was going to be a challenge. For one of those disciples, hope restored didn't come easy and it didn't come quickly. That disciple's name is Peter. And the restoration of hope for Peter was somewhat doubtful. Peter's behavior in the crisis had devastated his identity. Let me say that again. Peter's Peter's behavior in the midst of the crisis devastated his identity and his calling. Before his arrest, Jesus warned Peter, said, Peter, tonight you will deny me three times. And you know what his attitude was? It was, Lord, though everybody else will, will let you down, forsake you, but not I. I'm ready to die with you. Jesus said, no. Three times, but by the time the cock crows, you will deny me three times. We know the story that Peter fell and his fall was great. And Peter, unlike Judas, who, who went out and, and, and took his own life, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was sorry for what had taken place. The denial with blasphemous words that he ever even knew Jesus. And that, that broke him. And, and, and look, there's no doubt that Peter was forgiven, but I think like some people Peter had a hard time forgiving Peter for what he did. He had a hard time struggling with the failure of the past. The hopelessness in Peter's spirit played out big time in Peter's behavior. 
and in Peter's actions. And we can see this in John chapter 21. Jesus ordered the disciples, all 11 of them, to wait with him and wait for him, excuse me, in a certain mountain range. But Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, I don't know if you know this, but they don't have fishing in mountains. They have fishing in lakes, okay? And so Peter is somehow acting like Peter, you know? Uh, Peter had a, had a history of, of kind of resisting whatever it, it was that the Lord was saying. It, remember when Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 17, I believe it is, or 16, said that he was going to be crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. Peter took him over to the side and said, Lord, you got to stop talking like this. This ain't going to happen to you. And, and Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. You, you, you're not interested in the things of God. You're interested right now in the things of man. When Jesus came over to Peter and said, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And then again, when Jesus warned Peter that he would deny him three times, again, somehow Peter, you know, falls into this rut of, I kind of know better, you know, and, and I, I'm, I don't want to be rebellious or disobedient to you, but, but that's what his actions became. He had to learn a lesson after following Jesus, maybe the way that sometimes we learn our lessons, when we come to the end of ourselves and we recognize our own weaknesses. I tell you what, I believe that God wants us to know something. And, and, and I think that this statement is up on the board. God doesn't want to remove our memories. He wants to redeem them. God is able to take even the failures of the past and to use them as obstacles, as, as occasions, not obstacles, as occasions for our growth. God is able to redeem our past. He doesn't want us to, to, to blot them out or to erase them from our memory, but to actually use them. John Owen said this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon Christ, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. And I think that Peter was in a crisis right now. But Peter was about to discover the depth of the love of God and of the grace of God. The story is found in, in John chapter 21. So let's, let, let's look at the context of when Peter says, I'm going fishing. So John 21 verse 1 says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas called Didymus, which means the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Now, we know that there are seven here, but there are four others who are probably waiting where Jesus said. They, they said, look, we're, not going, we're going to stay exactly where Jesus told us to, to, to wait for him. But when Peter said, I'm going fishing, listen, this was more than, let's go have a pleasant afternoon. In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't in the afternoon at all that they went fishing. Peter is leaving the ministry. Peter is quitting. Peter is forsaking the call of God that was upon his life because of his past failure. He says, I'm going fishing. And, and listen, and the, 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 the seriousness of this is that six others said, we're going with you. So Simon told them, and then they said, we'll go with you. I mean, this really was a crisis. 
I believe that the mission of the church was in jeopardy at this point. Was Satan behind the efforts to derail the church? I believe so, probably so. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So get this, they're fishing all night long and they caught nothing. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of the first encounter that Peter had with Jesus when they had been fishing all night long and caught nothing and Jesus said, put out a little bit into the deeper water for a catch and Peter said, Lord, now's not the right time to fish, right? So I think that there's something here God wants not only Peter to learn, but each of us to learn as well, that without him, we can't do anything. We can labor hard. We can work real hard at serving the Lord, but it's the Lord who gives the increase. So it says in verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who's writing this, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they had been not far from shore, about 100 yards. Now, 100 yards, if if I'm not mistaken, that's a football field. Do you ever try talking to somebody from one end of a football field to, to the next? I don't, I don't think it's necessarily easy for, for them to hear a conversation that was taking place. Hey, guys, do you have any fish? I think there's something afoot here. I think there's something supernatural here. After all, we're talking about the resurrected Jesus. When they had landed and saw the fire, burning coals with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus, it's a barbecue. <laughs> Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. Here is is the risen Lord who has conquered death, who is now serving his disciples. He is ever the servant of God. He is waiting on his disciples serving them bread and fish, having had a barbecue. Listen, it says this in verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter. Now, I think it's, I think it's significant that Jesus d- doesn't use the word Peter. He, that was the name that he had been changed into to talk about the change that he was going to experience. And I think it's a reminder of, of his past. So he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these? That is, do you really love me more than these others? Do do you love me more than these other disciples? Because at one point you basically said that you did love me more than others because because while others were going to forsake you, you weren't going to forsake me. Peter, do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. 
I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say on the second occasion. He didn't use the same phrase of comparison. So Jesus said to, the, to him, feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my lambs. Then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Not more than others, but do, just plainly, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. I, I don't know if you're beginning to see this unfold here, but this is amazing. This is the, this is the recommissioning of Peter to the ministry. This is Peter, I know, I know you've fallen, I know you've failed, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You're going to be able to, to be strong. You're going to be able, not on the basis of your strength, but on the basis of my strength. Peter, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I think Peter's beginning to learn that even in his weakness, the power of Christ's strength might rest upon him. And so for the third time, it says, verse 17, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt or grieved because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. At this point, Peter was just simply submitting to the omniscience of, of Christ. He, Lord, you know everything. There's nothing that you don't know. I'm not gonna rely upon myself. You know that I love you. Jesus said, again, feed my sheep. Three times Peter had denied the Lord. Now Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to confess his loyalty and his love for, for Christ. This is pure grace. This is, this is Jesus recommissioning somebody who, who had a great fall. And yet, you know what? No one is outside of the grace of God. Jesus was expressing his belief that while Peter had been wounded in battle, Peter had been knocked down, but he had not been knocked out. I don't know if that's been your experience or not. There, there, there are times that we, we, we do stumble. We, we, listen, who, who of us cannot relate to Peter? That we have all failed in our past, and we even may have present things that are troubling us about about things that we've done. But what an amazing expression of hope Peter is. The lesson that maybe we should learn from this as well is that it, every single one of us are as weak as water without the grace of God. And any one of us are, are able to, to do terrible things apart from the strength that Christ gives us. Peter was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. What I want you to learn, what I want you to take away from this message this morning is simply this, that Jesus is greater than our past and his love is greater than our failures. He's greater than our past and he's greater than our failures. When we view our past through the filter of the gospel of grace, hope becomes restored. It humbles us and it gives us a new sense of appreciation, of wonderment for the grace of God. That we can say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I want you to notice that Jesus didn't start his conversation with condemnation. Didn't say, Peter, you denied me three times. Didn't even bring that up. But simply said, Peter, do you really love me? Now I know 
that in the Greek, there's a difference in the words that are used. Jesus was saying, do you love me with a sacrificial kind of love? And Peter was saying, Lord, you know I affectionately care about you. But it got to the point where, where Peter was just able to surrender himself completely, give his, give his failures to the Lord as well. One of the things that we all have to learn how to do is to commit our past to the Lord as well as to commit our future to him. God didn't demand that any of us demonstrate our allegiance to him, to him before Christ was willing to die for us. To somehow try to prove that we're worthy of our forgiveness is to not understand the grace of God or the depths of his love for us. It's to totally misunderstand it. Now, what can, what can rebellious sinners do to motivate God to send his son to die in our place? Nothing, absolutely nothing. He was motivated simply on the basis of his own love for us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved us and therefore have demonstrated their mercy and love toward us. No matter what you've ever done in the past, no matter what is your present situation, there are oceans of hope for us in Christ, that Jesus is indeed greater than our, our past and his love is greater than all of our failures. I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, hymn before. Uh, it was written about 180 years ago when I was just a small kid. <laughs> uh, it goes like this. My, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on his sweet name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The next verse says this, when darkness veils his lovely face, when hope is obscured, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. The guy who wrote that 180 years ago, his name is Ed Mote, uh, didn't, didn't come from a godly uh, household. In fact, his, his parents were managers of a pub in London. He often spent his, his childhood in the streets of London having been neglected by his parents and having had kind of a rough life. But somehow at the age of about 18, he heard the gospel and gave his life to Christ. For the next 37 years, he worked as a cabinet maker. At the age of 55, he became a pastor. And for the next 21 years, he pastored a Baptist church in Sussex, England. Listen, God wants to take whatever has been in your past and he doesn't want to erase it. He wants to redeem it. Look at the way in which Peter made such an amazing comeback. For the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is the predominant figure that God was using, and, and God continued to use Peter afterwards. Only Luke went the direction of the apostle Paul and Barnabas, and so stopped writing about Peter. But God used Peter in such a, a magnificent way. It was Peter who spoke on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God. And again, in Acts chapter four, 5,000 more were brought into the kingdom of God. 
God is able to redeem the failures of the past and to use them as a part of our history in God so that we appreciate the grace of God. And God's able to do that for us this morning. That no matter what you're experiencing now presently or no matter what was your experience in the past, Jesus Christ is greater than your past and his love is greater than your failures. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you're able to hold us secure in the midst of the storm when our hope is in Christ. That no matter what direction the storm may come, that we can face any storm in this life because Jesus Christ is the hope of glory. That he is our hope. We sang about that this morning in some of the songs that that, that you orchestrated by asking the worship team to do these songs this morning. You are our hope, oh God. And I just pray this morning for every person right now to be once again infused with hope restored because hope restored becomes a source of life and you are the source of life to us. I pray now for a release, Lord God, of your favor For those that need a physical touch of healing right now, I just pray for a a release of divine mercy and power to heal bodies this morning in this place. For those who've come discouraged, oh God, Lord, I I pray for today, for encouragement to come and for their emotions to be healed, for, for relationships to be cured by the power of the blood of Jesus. Right before we sing, I want to just say this. Uh, Joe Let's started a job last Monday and uh, call, called me the other day. I, I said on, on last Sunday, I said, your whole life can change for the good in one afternoon. Joe says, I just, I got, I just got to tell you. I had, the first two days, I'd been commuting from, from his house here in Ronkonkoma to Manhattan, waking up five o'clock in the morning. And it was hard on him because of, of his back pain, right? And uh, he said, just that one afternoon, just, just everything changed. Uh, they couldn't find a desk for him in Manhattan. So he said, you know, I don't mind working in Hopog. And they said, yeah, that's a really great idea. And they found a desk for him, <laughs> one that he formerly worked at. He's looking out the same window that he worked at, you know, experienced in the past, and God restored that to him. And one afternoon, God can do that for you today, right now, as we just worship and end in worship.